Welcome back. This is part two of our conversation with Fernando Barraza. In this part, we talk to Fernando about very specific planning ideas for that part of the world. Hope you enjoy. Depending on what they want to do, then you know we take these tools out of, out of our tool shed and, and start navigating the rules to best advise them on how to structure their investment for both income tax purposes and estate tax purposes. That was the exact right segue because I do want to talk about uh, more specifically about U.S. Mexico and maybe start by by focusing on kind of Mexican nationals who are investing in the U.S. and maybe talk a little bit about like okay if they're going to do that then what are the ways to ease these burdens or to avoid these traps? Because I think we've set out the traps pretty well. And I think we've probably scared everybody with the traps. But there are ways, uh, if you're deliberate and smart about the way you do it, to avoid these traps. So uh, let me start with the, the uh, estate tax because I think that issue filters into other issues. So you've already teed up very nicely the idea that if, if a foreign national, say a Mexican national, purchases property in the United States, be that stock in U.S. companies or real estate, um, when they die, they're going to have to pay a state tax on those, on those assets. There are two big exceptions to this rule. And actually, these are exceptions that don't even apply for U.S. citizens. So these are like special exceptions that only apply to non-residents. These are benefits that exist because you're a non-resident in the estate tax arena. Number one, stock in a foreign company, a foreign corporation from a U.S vantage point, an entity that's treated as a foreign corporation, is not treated as located in the United States. So you could set up a foreign corporation and then do your investing through that foreign corporation. That foreign corporation could own a billion dollars of assets, an infinite number of assets located in the United States. But when the foreign national dies, because what they own is stock in a foreign corporation, there's no estate tax. No estate tax on the assets that are held by that foreign corporation. That's the biggest exception to the rule. And so very often the investment plan for non-residents in order to get around this estate tax issue is to invest through a company that's a foreign company that we, the U.S., view as a foreign corporation. So that's the first thing. Second thing is not all assets that are in the U.S. are created equal for estate tax purposes. So there's a couple of main examples to this. Number one, um, what's called portfolio interest or basically registered debt um, is not treated as if it is located in the United States. So registered debt, you know, what is that? It's, although it doesn't have to be as formal as this, you know, think about most uh, corporate bonds that are sold in the open market. These are notes that are registered to the owner on the note. And a lot of those notes are portfolio and portfolio interest notes. And so you can invest in those kinds of notes and you could, again, die owning a billion dollars of them. But for estate tax purposes, because you're a non-resident, you're treated as if those notes, even though they may be with U.S. corporations, are not located in the United States. So that's a big exception. Uh, the other exception that's a really big one, or really two other big exceptions are deposit accounts, uh, interest-bearing deposit accounts in the U.S. that aren't tied to a U.S. trader business are also not treated as located in the U.S. So imagine you're a Mexican national, you're earning a lot of money, but your money's come to you in the form of uh, Mexican pesos. And 
your exchange rate or the value of your money is fluctuating all the time. And in, inflation might be very bad for you from time to time in Mexico. So you want to take your money and put it in a currency that is stable. So you take that money and you deposit it in a deposit account in the US in US dollars. So now your money is sitting in a relatively stable currency. You put a billion dollars into that account because it's a deposit account uh, and it's if it's not tied to a US trader business, when you die, that account is not subject to a state tax. US citizens do not get the same treatment. The other big exception is insurance, life insurance proceeds on the life of the non-resident are not subject to a state tax. So again, you have, you're earning money in Mexico, it's in the form of pesos, pesos you don't want to hold money in pesos because of all the reasons I indicated. So you take that money, you stuff it into a U.S. life insurance policy. When you die, the proceeds of that policy are not subject to a state tax in the U.S. That's a huge exception. That is the opposite of the rule for U.S. citizens for estate tax purposes. So there are certain carve-outs that are actually benefits. Even though you have this tiny $60,000 exemption, there are little carve-outs that are actually benefits for non-residents that encourage non-residents to invest in the United States and to to hold assets in the United States, so long as those assets fit within these categories. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, at, at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, th those are the tools we have in our tool shed whenever we're talking to clients and, you know, kind of navigating, you know, what, you know, that specific clients wants and needs as far as, you know, what they want to do. You know, do they want to invest in the U.S. stock market, you know, corporate bond market, you know, real estate, what have you, uh, depending on what they want to do, then, you know, we take these tools out of, out of our tool shed and, and start navigating the rules to best advise them on how to structure their investment for both income tax purposes and estate tax purposes. And I always explain it to my clients that sometimes it's a pendulum. You know, sometimes you're going to sacrifice a little bit of, you know, some benefits from an income tax perspective in order to fully benefit from the estate tax exclusions that are available to you and vice versa. You know, depending on how risk adverse you are, maybe you want to risk a little bit more on the estate tax side to benefit from the income tax benefits, you know, that might be available to you via capital gains or qualified dividends and, you know, some, some other preferred tax rate regimes, you know, types of incomes. So, um, so yeah, those, those are the tools that we have. And, and if, if done correctly, like you said, you could have billions of dollars invested in the U.S. and, and not really worry about the U.S. estate tax system at all. Um, or you could have something as small as $100,000 and all of a sudden be trapped within the U.S. estate tax system, if not done correct. So if yeah. anything, I want that to be the takeaway here that there are ways of doing things correctly and, and, you know, having your cake and eating it too. So then when you, uh, and that's, that's a state tax that doesn't really cover the income tax issues. But as you say, usually there are some, there's a little bit of give and take. If you're doing a state tax planning, there may be a little bit of give on the income tax side where you're not going to get everything that you want on the income tax side but you're going to you're going to suffer a little bit on the income tax side in order to get the estate tax benefit. So, give you an example of that. So, if you have a foreign corporation, so let's let's drill down to that just a little bit as it relates to Mexicans. So, the US views certain entities in Mexico as foreign corporations. Basically, if the entity provides the owners limited liability, then the U.S. will view it as a foreign corporation. The, the typical ones are basically any Mexican entity that ends in Sociedad Anonima. And then Mexico has sort of their version of a limited liability company, an SRL de CV. Um, 
those are all in this category of entities that the U.S. views as foreign corporations. So, you know, you pick one of those out of the hat, you do your investing through that entity. For income tax purposes, uh, it, it's going to be subject to certain income tax rules in the U.S. that might not be the most beneficial. It may have to pay uh, kind of U.S. corporate type rates. Uh, it may have to pay even deemed dividend tax uh, in the U.S., depending on how it's structured. But you're going to sacrifice on that side of the ledger because you don't want to pay the 40% excise tax. Uh, which is the estate tax. So you set up one of these entities in Mexico and, and you run the investment through that entity. You also may have uh, tax at the entity level in Mexico that you have to pay. So you kind of have to pick and choose the battle. But it, when the numbers get high enough, it's almost always worth it to pay the income tax hit rather than to pay the 40% um, on the total value of the asset. Then when you flip that, so now you have an American who's investing in Mexico, uh, the roles are reversed. The, the US does not necessarily like foreign corporations, depending on the type of foreign corporation. So let's say you look at it and you say, uh, this is say a foreign corporation that either basically gets its money from passive sources, we don't like those kinds, or um, it's a foreign corporation that's US controlled, more than 50% US controlled, we don't really like those kind. It's one of those types of corporations, then depending on what type of entity it is, we have rules that may allow you to elect out of this foreign corporate status, depending on what type of entity it is. So these Sociedad Anonymas are not that type of entity, but the Mexican version of the LLC are. And so understanding those rules, you may actually be able to pick and choose via tax elections to not have a foreign corporation if that's the better thing to do from a US perspective. But again, you want to you got to make these decisions before you make the investment, because once you pick the investment and the investment vehicle, that is the entity vehicle in Mexico, it can be hard to get out of it tax free. Just like when a foreigner invests in the US, it's hard to get out of that investment tax free in the US. So there are ways to kind of negotiate these rules to limit the horrors that we have described. Uh, and that goes both ways inbound Mexico to the US and outbound U.S. to Mexico. That's exactly right. You know, and, and, and you were talking about uh, Mexican SAA de CVs and SADRLs, you know, kind of drilling a little bit further into that, you know, SAA de CVs, uh, you know, very similar to our INCs, you know, our, our, our U.S. corporations. And an SADRL is is uh, somewhat similar to our LLC. From a Mexican tax perspective, they, they are both the same. The, the, the Mexican tax system taxes both SAA de CVs and SADRLs exactly the same, just as a, a corporation. You know, they don't have, Mexico does not have a flow-through tax system like the U.S. has. Uh, they take care of uh, avoiding, you know, I, I think the U.S. tax system established this flow-through mechanism in order to avoid the double taxation that occurs uh, in, the, in the C corporation. Uh, a lot of foreign countries, and Mexico being one of them, avoided having to create this whole partnership regime uh, by having uh, an indirect credit system when an individual draws dividends. So, so for Mexican tax purposes, that U.S. national that invests in Mexico, they, they, they probably, they shouldn't care, you know, there's, there's no difference to that U.S. individual, whether they set up an SAA de CV or an SADRL. They're both going to be taxed the same. However, from a U.S. tax perspective, it's very, it's very different. An SAA de CV specifically is considered a per se corporation, which means that it's, it's default status and, and it's automatic, uh, um, ca you know, categorization is that it's a corporation and you cannot change that designation. Versus an ACDRL, its default status is a corporation. However, you can't change its designation by making what we call in the US a check the box election. 
where we can treat that now as a flow through. So it's little things like this that, you know, just by talking to a professional, you know, at the, from the get-go, when you're, you're, you're starting a business, you're opening operations in Mexico, you know, this, this small difference of setting up uh, SADRL as opposed to an SAA de Cerve can have a, a you know, a, a, an exorbitant, you know, difference as far as what the, the income tax consequences to you will be down the line. Because by making a check the box and having that flow through treatment that U.S. individuals tax on any of those Mexican tax, that Mexican operation will be completely different had he elected the SA de Seve and then all of a sudden he's locked into that foreign corporation status. And sometimes depending on the the business, if if it's a business enterprise in Mexico, you're kind of stuck. You don't don't get the option to to use um, uh, an entity that you can check the box on. But again, you're just sort of trying to navigate the rule the best that you can. And so if you have uh, a situation where you must use uh, what I'm calling the Sociedad Anonima, the non-SRLCV uh, entities, uh, where it's going to be a deemed corporation from the U.S. perspective, there are then ways to try to structure things on the U.S. side so that, again, the tax hit is limited. The tax hit is not as bad as it could be, say, if you individually own the interest in that foreign entity. And there are some certain tax rules where uh, if you individually own the interest in that foreign entity, depending on the entity, you could be taxed worse than if you set up a U.S. corporation to own the interest in that foreign entity. So understanding those dynamics, then you can kind of dance the dance and avoid avoid the worst of the potential results. There's always going to be some tax result. You know, you're never going to get out of having to pay tax entirely, um, but you can avoid the worst of the results by just understanding how to structure things up front, uh, both in Mexico and then on the U.S. side, if you're a U.S. investor uh, investing into Mexico. Okay, so let's take that because I think that's a really good framework of sort of general ideas of how how the cross-border structuring is done to try to take into account the different tax systems because they're not the same. And so you're just trying the best you can to piece the puzzle together in a way that will match up and not everything does match up. So now you take that and instead of having one individual involved, you have multiple individuals involved and not all of them are citizens or residents of the same country. So some of them are citizens or residents of Mexico, and some of them are citizens and residents of the U.S. So in, in say, Mexican families or family units that are based in Mexico, how common is it for you to see that situation where the family is mixed across the border in terms of their citizenship and residency? I, th- I think, you know, in, in, with regards to mixed families, you know, I, I can strongly say I think upwards of 90%. You know, it's it's never clear cut. It's we never have a situation where the individuals investing in the U.S. are just completely Mexican, and you know they don't. You know, they really don't have. You know, sometimes there's those situations, but but in, in a lot of situations, a lot of times there's a mix. You know, some of the family members might be U.S. You know, the children, the grandkids, the spouse. Um, or even some of their partners in the investment. You know, we, we have a lot of companies that, you know, from Mexico that expand operations to the U.S., but, you know, maybe the capital, some investment capital, working capital is, is from a U.S. individual. 
So then all of a sudden you have this, you know, new U.S. entity with, you know, all these different attributes, right? You have a U.S. individual, maybe, you know, contributing capital, you know, working capital or, or investment capital or real estate or what have you. And then you have this foreign national also making their own investment, working capital or, uh, or what have you. So what do you do? Because the, the, that U.S. company, you would want to structure it one way for the U.S. national and you would want to structure it a different way for that Mexican national. And also vice versa. Well, a lot of times when you have a U.S. national investing abroad, you know, uh, you know, let's say a, a, this, 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 you know, same U.S. national as the the Mexican corporation, the SADCB, SADRL. Sometimes there's uh, nine times out of ten, there's a local individual that is also partnering up with that U.S. individual in that new venture. And again, you know, for, you know, X, Y, and Z, they might, you know, that Mexican individual might prefer a different entity. You know, just like in the U.S., we have S-corps and, you know, uh, corporations and LLCs and LPs and all that. Well, all the, all the countries around the world have the same things. You know, they also have their versions of LPs and their versions of INCs and their versions of LLCs, just like in Mexico in this case, where we were talking about SADRLs, SADCVs. They have other entities, SSAs. They have some that are called SAPIs. You know, they have a whole menu of different types of companies that you can pick from, just like we, we do here. So, but you know, to answer your question, I think nine times out of 10, it's never clear cut. It's never clean. There's, you know, which makes our job that much more interesting and makes the client's, you know, situation that much more interesting also, because, you know, there couldn't be a whole slew of opportunities that you can navigate. You know, if other family members are U.S. nationals or vice versa, uh, you know, a spouse is a U.S. national or, you know, if, 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 if a U.S. individual is investing abroad, they might have a foreign spouse themselves. So, you know, it's, it, 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 it adds to the complexity and to the puzzle that we as, as their tax advisors have to put together for them. Yeah. No, that's perfect. You you teed that up nicely. You uh, you uh, you tolerated my question. <laughs> uh, that was really the point that I, I thought we ought to get out there, which is that first of all, especially with Mexican families that do business across the border or they're they're investing in the U.S. Almost always, there's somebody in the family who's a U.S. citizen or a U.S. resident, uh, and to to the point that you made, also very frequently they're doing business with. U.S. citizens, and so there's a U.S. partner involved uh, or a U.S. company that's involved um, in that business venture. And so now you get this mix. So, you know, we've sort of been talking about the, these uh, issues as if it's a single individual and it's either outbound or it's inbound, but you can get situations where it's a mix of multiple individuals or companies, and it's both a little bit inbound and a little bit outbound from the U.S. in terms of who's making the investment. And so you just have to try to navigate that situation. And that's that's a slightly different situation because as you say, different pieces of the puzzle have different issues like we've been describing where the estate tax applies totally differently to uh, one individual in the mix because they're a non-resident of the U.S. as to as compared to somebody who might be a citizen of the U.S. And then the income tax issues can be different. So um, it's a, it's a bit of a patchwork all the time and no two situations are alike. And I, I really can't emphasize that enough that it, you, you were kind of talking, Fernando, how in the U.S. sometimes if it's just U.S. citizens and they're doing business in the U.S., it can be pretty easy and almost cookie cutter to figure out what the structure is going to be with 
obviously there are exceptions to that, but as a general proposition, they're pretty standard structures that are used in different industries in the US. But when you have cross-border um, families or cross-border investment groups, all of a sudden, it's not cookie cutter at all. And the way that you can structure things or the way you ought to structure things is going to be different from, from one instance to the next. Uh, so it takes a lot of creativity and thought kind of to the theme that we've been talking about, just think about it ahead of time. If you can think about it ahead of time and then navigate the issues, you can get the least burdensome outcome rather than having to fall into the pits and uh, deal with the, the worst possible situations. So let me give you, uh, Fernanda, one other area where there's, to me, a somewhat strange uh, dynamic, and that is in the case of trusts. So in the U.S., trusts are very common. That's because we come from the British legal system, uh, common law system, and trusts are a product of the common law system. Mexico does not come from the British system. It comes from the Spanish system, which is a civil law system, and civil law, as a broad proposition, does not recognize trusts as a thing that exists. And so uh, there has been uh, for a long time a bit of a mismatch between U.S. trusts and what could approximate as a trust in Mexico. One of the structures that exists in Mexico that sort of approximates a trust, although it's not identical to a trust, uh, is what's called a fideocomiso. And there are all sorts of different kinds of them. So can you can you talk about that dynamic just a little bit and trying to negotiate that dynamic from the perspective of the U.S. or a U.S. citizen? Sure. So like, so yeah, you teed it up perfectly where, um, you know, from an international tax perspective, we don't only have entities that we have to look into. We also have the, the, the trust entity, which is kind of this hybrid, right? Even from a U.S. tax perspective, you know, I always try to, I like to describe it as a hybrid entity. It's, it's different, you know, and, and a lot of uh, not in a lot of respects it's kind of like a, a you know like, like you would char characterize an LLC or a corporation but then a, at the end of the day it's also how you would characterize an individual and you know from an income tax perspective uh, sometimes you get a little bit of both you know sometimes a trust pays tax sometimes the individual pays tax you know just kind of teeing it up for the audience that way well in Mexico um, like you said fideicomisos are somewhat like trust, but they're not. And and a lot of times we have individuals, U.S. individuals, uh, when making investments abroad, uh, specifically in Mexico, creating these fideicomisos because a lot of times they are forced into this because of, of how their local government and local uh, laws work. So very quickly, a fideicomiso and in Mexico, it's a not allowed for foreign nationals. And this is not just U.S. nationals, but any non-Mexican citizen cannot buy beachfront property, for instance, and cannot buy property within 21 kilometers from the border. So if you think about it, nobody can buy, you know, a non-Mexican citizen cannot buy property, you know, 21 kilometers from the board, from, from the U.S.-Mexico border or its southern border. And then no non-citizen individual can buy any coastal property. And I think, I forget how many kilometers it is. I, I want to say it's 21, but I think at some point somebody told me that it wasn't 21, but it's a certain amount of kilometers from the beach. So uh, when, you know, when we're advising our, our Canadian clients or U.S. clients that are buying beachfront property in San Carlos and Puerto Vallarta, Cancun, Acapulco, you know, all the nice places that we would all probably want to be right now, as opposed to locked up, you know, because of COVID, <laughs> 
um, they have to buy this beachfront property in a fideicomiso. Um, so what is that? You know, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, uh, doubts in the past as to is that a, a truthfully a trust? Because going back to you know the one of our earliest conversations was a U.S. individual making investments abroad not only has income tax considerations to take into consideration, but also uh, informational filings. They have to inform the IRS government, the, the US government and the IRS of what their foreign investments are. So there was a lot of questions of what these fideicomisos are and should they be reported to the US government? You know, not to, you know, I don't wanna get into the weeds of things, but a couple of years ago, there was a, a, um, a revenue procedure that uh, provided some additional guidance that those specific fideicomisos were not to be treated as trust in and of, in of, of themselves, more like contracts between an individual and a bank institution that was creating them in order for them to hold title of the property, therefore allowing them to not treat them as trust and not have to file special tax forms with the with the U.S. that you know that would treat them as trust, but you know, this this very long introduction is to um, mention that when a U.S. individual is investing abroad and not using SA de Seves or SADRLs or any other type of entity and using more fideicomiso, they have to be careful in that there might be two things to consider. Informational filing requirements are, 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 you know, the first thing, but then there might be some income tax consequences that they they might not see coming because fideicomisos can be seen as business trusts, for instance. Where it is a, um, it's, it's, it's more closely seen as a trust, but from a U.S. tax perspective, it's more like a corporation, which kind of blows people's minds. You know, you can have a fideicomiso in Mexico, the way they explain it, it's a trust. You know, that individual, they kind of now, you know, trusts are very complicated to understand in and of themselves. So they kind of already got it in their head that it's a trust, but then all of a sudden, it's not a trust from a U.S. tax perspective. It's more of a, like a corporation. So then all of a sudden that investment uh, is taxed as a corporation, not as a trust and not as this fideicomiso where, you know, where I was using this beachfront property example where it was kind of disregarded altogether. So fideicomisos are kind of this very hybrid type of entity where it can be multiple things. It could be nothing. It could be this completely disregarded entity, kind of like in the beachfront property example that I was giving. It can be a true trust. It can be treated as a true foreign irrevocable trust sometimes or a true, you know, uh, simple type trust where, you know, the, 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 the U.S. tax consequences of having a foreign irrevocable type trust, complex trust is different from, a, from what it would be if it's a U.S. Uh, you know, typical irrevocable or, you know, bypass or, you know, uh, simple or complex or whatever type of trust. So it can either be disregarded, it can actually truly be a trust, or it can actually be a, you know, a, a, a more like a business trust that's really more a corporation. And then not only that, but if you fall under this last category where it, it is this type of corporation, you might on top of that be able to do a check the box election to treat it as a flow through, you know, so you know, I, um, I, I, you know, a couple of years ago, I believe we had uh, a, a mutual client, Brent, with uh, your partner, uh, Juan Suniga, that was a U.S. Uh, company making investments in uh, hotel property in Puerto Vallarta. And they were specifically looking at uh, business trusts because from a Mexican tax perspective, there were certain benefits that were going to be uh, granted to them um, if they used a, 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 a a, fide, a Mexican business fideicomiso. So then from a U.S. tax perspective, we had to navigate, well, you know, what the hell is this? <laughs> you know, is it disregarded? 
is it a, is it a true trust or is it actually a, a more of a business trust type corporation deal? And if it is, can we do a check the box and make it afloat? So, you know, fideicomisos, just like in the U.S., are kind of their own beast and you have to look at them carefully because they can be, you know, a, a very hybrid type entity where it falls in all these different categories. Hopefully I answered your question. I know. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's sort of it is where, you know, we have in our minds what trusts are in the U S because we have, you know, we have trust. There's a specific way that they're treated in the U S we have a system for them, but the fideicomisos, they could be trust, but they might not be trust. They're this, this thing that is sort of pitched as though it's a trust or you read the literature, it's like, it's a land trust or you read the literature, it's a business trust. You know, you, the word trust is thrown around when they're being pitched to Americans because that's what we're used to. That's what we understand. But the U.S. tax system, when you layer the U.S. tax system on top of these, again, trying to put pieces together, trying to figure out like, how do these two different tax systems match up? Um, this is one area where even though we say or we hear or we're told that these things are trusts, the, when you layer the U.S. tax laws on top, they don't match up. They're not actually trusts like we have in the U.S. And when the, because they're not actually trusts like we have in the U.S., all of a sudden the tax rules change. And so you have to be kind of careful with the Fideo Comisos. Obviously, they're very popular. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of American money that buys up properties on the coast in the zone where they're not supposed to be buying up properties, but they, they, they are able to do it by doing it through a Fideo Comiso that's set up for that purpose. But if they're buying a hotel, that's, that's a different animal. And uh, so you just have to be kind of wise to the fact that picking that, even that kind of structure, even something that sounds like it's identical to a U.S. entity like a trust, because it's in a foreign country, you can't assume that that's correct. And so really, you really have to scrutinize those structures to make sure you understand what it is that you're buying into. And to your point, Fernando, if you do that scrutiny up front, it could be that you can structure it in a way that is the least burdensome way to do it and a good way to do it. Um, but if you didn't know the issue existed and you just go full bore uh, into the investment, you can step in some landmines that can be difficult to get out of afterwards, at least to get out of for free. Uh, so that's, yeah, that that's kind of the point I wanted to make with, with trusts and fideo comisos is just they're kind of two different concepts they're talked about as if they're the same thing but they're actually not the same thing in the i mean they're functionally not the same thing but they're definitely not the same thing in the eyes uh, of the u.s tax law all the time yeah i completely agree and for you know for any practitioners in the audience you know that some advice that i want to you know just give the general public and you know any people that practice in this area or you know and you know incidentally were dragged into this area, right? Because they might have a client that, you know, uh, was investing in the U.S. and they were happy with it. You know, very familiar. You know, that U.S. practitioner was very familiar with what they're doing, but then all of a sudden, you know, that client now decided to invest abroad. You know, this hotel, for instance, was this was a U.S. Uh, construction client that that did U.S. developments, U.S. construction, had you know real estate, et cetera, et cetera, and they found this opportunity in Puerto Vallarta that you know they crunched the numbers, it made sense economically, and they wanted to dive you know deep into this. So now that U.S. practitioner got dragged into this whole international world without really knowing uh, you know that they would ever be practicing you know international tax compliance, but. What I do want to say is, in a lot of respects, whenever you're you're practicing in this area, it's 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 very similar in a way to the U.S. tax system. It's <clears throat> it's just different in in that it's obviously in a different language and it's a different tax system. But in a lot of ways, 
you know, like we're talking, Mexico has corporations just like we do. They have these entities that could be like LLCs that we can treat them as flow-throughs. They have fideicomisos that could be like trusts, you know, um, uh, and could not be trusts, you know, at the same time. But at the end of the day, you know, when we're, we're talking to clients uh, on making U.S. investments, it's the same thing. We're, we're kind of navigating the, room, the, the rules <clears throat> and suggesting, you know, uh, you know, do this investment via an LP, uh, an LLP, an LLC, an Inc, you know, convert it into an S-Corp. It, it's, it's really, we're taking those same steps. It's just now in a, in a foreign jurisdiction. And we're, we're, we're you know, when, whenever that, that practitioner is now advising that client, just take that, you know, do the same things that you would had this been a U.S. investment. It's just the problem is when we're advising our U.S. client, we just do it automatically now, right? You just suggest, hey, you know, set it up as an LLC, do this, do that, you know, make this type of, you know, if it's a professional service type activity, you make them an S-corp because of X, Y, and Z. So you just do it in automatic. But, you know, when you're doing it abroad, there's a lot of the same rationales that you have to walk through, you know. Um, and if you talk to, if you partner with a Mexican tax advisor, that makes everything that much better because they're able to share with you why they're structuring it as a fideicomiso, why they're structuring it as a SADRL or SADCDE or SSA. So then you can kind of hear them out and understand, okay, they want to do it because of X, Y, and Z. And then you, then you go back to our internal revenue code and see, okay, what is that entity from a U.S. tax perspective? And, and, and kind of, you know, when a lot of, you know, I get, you know, I get clients from, from U.S. you know, U.S. CPAs or U.S. attorneys that don't really, they want to steer as far away from the international tax compliance realm as possible because it, it, it seems so convoluted and complicated. But at the end of the day, it, it is complicated, but it, it's interesting in that it's very similar to what we deal on day-to-day -day basis with just domestic issues. It's just, you're adding an additional layer of complexity, which sometimes you don't want to deal with, but in reality, it, it can be a, a, a kind of a beautiful part of our profession where it's interesting. It kind of keeps it fresh. You, you're looking at new things. You know, you have this fideicomiso. Our internal revenue code is in English, you know. Take a read at it. You know, you can obviously talk to other practitioners in the area and, 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 and get some advice. But at the end of the day, it has to be something. It has to be a trust, a disregarded entity, or a foreign corporation, or a foreign partnership. So what is it? So then you just do some research to figure that out. So it is complicated. It, you know, it is a niche area that a lot of people might not be interested. But at the end of the day, it, it, there are a lot of similarities when you know you're comparing it to just domestic issues. Yeah, and and one point you made in there is a great point and probably the the right point to end on which is when you're doing cross-border transactions um, unless you yourself or your advisor is licensed in that jurisdiction, um, you need to get on the phone with competent advice in that foreign jurisdiction and not assume that you know what the rules are there, even though, you know, you may be very familiar with those rules. Uh, you know, you, Fernando, between you and you, you and your firm and, and us and our firm, we've done a lot of transactions between the U.S. and Mexico. We have a fair idea of what the options are and what the rules are down there, but that doesn't mean we should ever assume that we know and assume that we can give the advice on it. And so, 
as you say, it's great when you have good advisors um, in that jurisdiction because they just help so much. They can explain it so easily and so clearly about what the right thing is to do. They understand where where the nuances are, uh, and they can really be valuable partners and, and essential partners. So it, it maybe maybe just kind of leave it on that note. So for anybody who is uh, engaging in these kinds of transactions, in addition to thinking about all the stuff that we were talking about, then also you want to get that counterpart in that foreign country involved. So they can be thinking about those issues at the same time too, and get you steered on the right course and understand all the little nuances that apply in that jurisdiction. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a marriage, you know, you want to, you want to get everybody on the same boat, you know, everybody's kind of tackling the same objectives, you know, at the end of the day, everybody wants to help the client achieve their dreams. So you want to get, you know, I, you know, I know enough about Mexico to be dangerous just because of how much I've worked with uh, Mexican nationals, but I would never sell myself as a Mexican tax professional or advisor. I always tell my clients, you need local advice on these issues because I can, you know, I know enough to be dangerous and I can tell you somewhat of how things work, but you know, I would never be able to advise you as well as a local individual on any of these matters. So, um, so yeah, I would definitely always suggest, you know, whether it's Mexico or any other country, and if it's a U.S. individual investing abroad, or even when it's a foreign individual investing to the U.S., I always like to partner with their local tax advisors in that foreign jurisdiction, so that we can both partner and 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 and, and drive the uh, the investment and the structuring to the most advantageous point for the client. You know. Yep. All right. Well, let's leave it there, Fernando. Uh, very much appreciate you being with us. How can people reach you should they want to reach you or find you? Um, I'm, I'm available, you know, best probably via email and you can do, you know, reach me at F Barraza. So F B A R A Z A at beachfleichman.com. So beachfleichman.com unfortunately isn't mouthful. So it's uh, beach just like a beach, B E A C H and then Fleichman F L uh, I E S C H M A N. Um, I think that's probably the best way you can reach me. I'm, you know, in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, I travel a lot to Phoenix, Arizona, and I actually travel all over the place. You know, I, I did mention at the start of the segment, I'm originally from Mexico. My first language is Spanish. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I travel all the time to Mexico. My wife is from uh, Sonora, well, farther in than San Carlos. Uh, so we go down there all the time. I have clients in Mexico City, Puerto Vallarta, Guadalajara. I've traveled to Canada and Toronto to see clients. So, uh, but definitely the best way to, the, the, to get a hold of me is uh, via email or calling our, our, our Tucson, Arizona office and they'll find wherever I may be. Excellent. Well, we'll, uh, we'll put all your contact information in the show notes as well. So anybody uh, who wants to look there can do so. Uh, thanks again, Fernando. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me, Brent. And thank you very much, Rachel, as well, for inviting me both uh, to your segment. Hey, listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.